Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 173 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment solicitor and HR specialist, and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice, where we provide advice and assistance to both employers and employees. And I've been hosting this podcast and producing this content since August 2014, so nearly coming up to the seven-year anniversary. Before I get into this week's featured content, I just want to start by mentioning a new project that I'm working on. And this is for something that will launch in September this year, 2021, and I'll be providing more information about it as we go along. But in essence, what I'm looking for is about five to 10 people who would like to come on board in what I'm calling the sort of beta side of things um, before it's really launched um, to give me some feedback on it. So what I'm really looking for is anybody who works in HR, either internally or if you're a HR professional and you work alone or you need some support, or if you're trying to get into HR and you want some more information about how it works. I'm really looking for a few people who will uh, come on board and help out and hopefully get some great resources and value from it. So if you're interested in learning more, I know I'm not really giving much away at this stage, but only just asking you to get in touch for more information if you can. My email is alison at realemploymentlawadvice.co.uk. So just drop me an email and I'll be back in touch with you with more information about what exactly it will entail. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's featured content. Now this week's episode is part four. And the final part in my mini series on capability and capability management and capability dismissals. So if you haven't already listened back to the last three episodes and you want to learn more about how to deal with capability issues in the workplace, then do please listen. This episode is covering some cases. So giving you some real life examples and hopefully illustrating the points that I've been making in the last three episodes about capability. I always find it helpful as a solicitor and someone practicing and advising on these issues to read judgments, um, not only the judgments that come in from the appeal tribunal or the court of appeal, which are the ones that tend to be publicised and more readily available. But I also like to read the employment judges reasons at the first instance, so from the employment tribunal, because quite often they can provide some really useful nuggets to help you in terms of getting things right from the outset. And in one particular case I'm going to refer to, um, the Employment Tribunal judge has actually spelt out some things that I think you will find helpful. And of course, everybody likes to read the juicy gossip, uh, the juicy facts about the case. And if you aren't aware, you can actually search and view Employment Tribunal judgments online. They're a matter of public record. And I'll put a link in the show notes to how you can find that. It's on the .gov website. So I'll give you all those details. The first case that I want to talk to you about is one from the London Central Employment Tribunal, which was heard in November 2016. And it's the case of Mr. Cook versus Department for Education. In this case, it is a case involving the civil service. And what I should explain is that in my experience, employees 
in the civil service have often a longer scope for performance improvement plans than they do in the private sector. That's my experience anyway. It seems as though employees have more opportunity to improve and that underperformance potentially goes on a lot longer than it would do in the private sector. Again, I'm not saying that that's true in all cases. I'm saying that's my experience. And this case really illustrates that because let me tell you, the first meeting with the employee about capability issues took place on the 1st of August 2013. And Mr. Cook was eventually dismissed for poor performance on the 21st of May 2015. So there were two years going through this process and various other processes, as you will hear, before he was actually dismissed for performance reasons. So the facts of this case, in essence, the key points are that issues were raised in July 2013 first in an informal way about a dip in the performance for Mr. Cook. And he was put into the must improve category at his mid-year review. On the 1st of August 2013, there was a meeting held. And when they discussed the reasons for his dip in performance, one of the reasons he gave was a high level of stress, which was attributed to the management style within his department. So for those of you who listened to the previous episodes, you'll know I mentioned that what quite often happens is when employees start to be challenged about their performance, they tend to flip it around and blame it on their managers or lack of support or alleged bullying. And that seems to be the kind of way in which Mr. Cook was shaping his argument here about his poor performance. Following that first meeting, he was then signed off sick on the 7th of August and returned to work on the 27th of August 2013. On the 8th of September 2013, he raised a bullying grievance and various meetings and correspondence took place um, during that time and then eventually on the 17th of January 2014, the formal performance management process was placed on hold pending the outcome of his grievance. Again, lots of correspondence and various other issues were taking place during this time. But on the 10th of March, the performance process was recommenced and he was subsequently invited to a disciplinary due to a conduct issue. So as I say, if you want to read the judgment in this, which I'll link to in the uh, show notes, you'll see that it's a very lengthy document with all of the details setting out the factual circumstances. So lots of other things were going on, as I say. On the 10th of April 2014, he was eventually given the first warning for poor performance. And then there was a poor performance review on the 5th of June. And on the 10th of June 2014, he was given a final written warning. There were various appeals about grievances, disciplinaries and occupational health reports also taking place. Between the 11th of June and the 9th of July 2014, there was a review of his performance. And then again, there was various levels of sickness, time off. And on the 11th of August 2014, he raised another grievance. The employer started to look at moving him to another department to see if that would better suit him. But nothing was found. And on the 16th of February 2015, the performance management process was resumed. On the 7th of April 2015, another meeting was held. And on the 13th of April, the performance improvement process was moved to the final stage. Thereafter, Mr. Cook raised another grievance. But this time, the process wasn't placed on hold while the grievance was dealt with. 
On the 15th of May 2015, there was another stage three meeting in the process. And on the 21st of May 2015, he was dismissed for poor performance. So as you can see from what I've just explained, it was both a lengthy process and there were a number of meetings that took place during the process and also at times it was placed on hold due to his sickness absence or where he was raising a grievance and that was being investigated. So the employer gave a lot of opportunities for Mr Cook to improve and for him to go through the performance improvement process. He subsequently made a claim for unfair dismissal and the employment tribunal agreed with the employer. They said that they had made their decision on reasonable grounds. They decided that the employee, Mr Cook, hadn't engaged in the process of poor performance. And as you'll see when you read through the facts of this case, rather than focusing on trying to improve and to deal with the performance improvement process, Mr. Cook's response was to be defensive and to raise grievances and to essentially, again, try to point the finger at the management and the management process rather than looking inward at his own conduct and behaviour. One point that came out of the judgment was that during the process, the employer had limited the hearing at stage three. So that's the stage three hearing to decide on whether to dismiss him or not to one hour. Now, I assume the reason for limiting it to one hour is because of the various other issues that had taken place and Mr. Cook's conduct throughout the process. I can't say for sure because I haven't seen the evidence, but I get the feeling from reading it that that's the reason why they said they were limiting it to one hour. The Employment Tribunal said that in the circumstances, it would have been reasonable for the employer to give Mr. Cook more time at that hearing in light of the fact that it was his job on the line. So because it was a hearing which could have resulted and did result in dismissal, they should have given him a little bit more time rather than limiting it to one hour so that he could have put across his case in a more lengthy way. However, the Employment Tribunal then went on to say that this didn't make the process procedurally unfair because that failure or that unreasonableness at that stage had been remedied at the appeal hearing where he'd been given an ample opportunity to have his say in relation to the points that led to his dismissal. So again, a rather an extreme example of how long a performance improvement process can take, but also a very good illustration of some of the things that can come up and the reasons why it can take a long time to go down the a performance route and dismiss someone for capability because like in this case Mr Cook was off sick at various intervals they needed to obtain occupational health reports they needed to look at adjustments and also they had to deal with his grievances. Now there's no requirement in law to place the performance improvement process on hold whilst you deal with a grievance but obviously in this case the employer decided to do so and it may very well be within the uh, Department for Education's terms or within their handbook that they would do so. But for whatever reason, they decided to place the process on hold. And as a result of the process that they followed, the Employment Tribunal were satisfied that they had fair and reasonable grounds for dismissal. The next case that I want to talk to you about is a complete contrast 
to um, the Cook versus Department of Education case. And this is Mr. Hoggins versus Recruitment Solutions Services Limited. And it's from the Reading Employment Tribunal, which took place on the 8th of August 2017. And it's a claim for unfair dismissal by Mr. Hoggins. In this case, Mr. Hoggins was employed as initially as a resourcer for recruitment and subsequently promoted to a consultant. He was employed from the 7th of January 2013 until his dismissal on the 5th of October 2016. In this case, the timescale from Mr. Hoggins being informed about the issue with his performance and being dismissed was very short. So, on the 26th of September 2016, a conversation took place between Mr. Hoggins and his manager, and he was put on a five week performance improvement plan as a result of his sales figures. However, despite agreeing this five week plan, he was invited to a meeting which took place on the 5th of October when his employer said that his sales figures had been unsatisfactory and there had been no improvement and he was dismissed with notice. His employer had relied on the fact that he had failed to hit his targets in 2016 and his figures were falling. He had been given no warning before this. He'd been given no notice that the meeting could result in dismissal and he was not offered the opportunity to appeal. He was given no reasonable opportunity to improve and as I'm sure you will agree, a very short period of time, what's that, about nine days between the original performance improvement plan and the decision to dismiss him. Unsurprisingly, the Employment Tribunal found that he had been unfairly dismissed. The um, dismissal was both procedurally and substantively unfair and other than warning him of the consequences Um, of no improvement to his sales figures, which took place in July 2016. He hadn't been given any warning of what could happen and none of the procedural requirements from the leading cases on capability dismissals were followed. There was no offer of training or supervision and in essence they failed to follow the basic steps of the ACAS code of practice. The consequence for the employer here was that Mr. Hoggins was awarded £21,924.36 in compensation for unfair dismissal. Again, as I said earlier, quite an extreme from the earlier case I was talking about. As you'll see from this case, it's a clear illustration of what can happen when the process goes wrong. Now, it could be in this situation, I don't know, but the employer was ignorant of the law and thought that they could dismiss him. But it is surprising that they decided to start with a performance improvement plan with a five week lead in for that and then just completely brush that aside and go forward with the dismissal. It does illustrate the point about ensuring that you follow a fair process and at least when you invite employees to meetings, ensuring that they're aware of what's going to happen and all of the requirements are fulfilled in terms of notifying them, giving the evidence and telling them what could happen as a result. Okay, the next case that I want to talk about is one that I'm going to probably butcher when I'm trying to pronounce the name. So my apologies but it's Mr. Adamoka Mensah versus HMRC. And this was heard in the London Central Employment Tribunal in August 2019. 
And this is a case which I was referring to earlier, which sets out very clearly for you some examples of the procedural defects which might lead to a finding of unfair dismissal. Now, if you're interested in reading the full judgment, as with the other ones, I'll put the link in the show notes. But you'll find the relevant points at paragraph 84 of the judgment. And because I found it really helpful, I'm just going to read it out to you. So it says, some examples of procedural defects which might lead to a finding of unfair dismissal include, but are by no means limited to, where there has been, one, no proper investigation or assessment of the employee's performance, and or insufficient notification to the employee of the alleged concerns, and or insufficient warning of the consequences of failing to improve, and or no reasonable chance to improve, and or insufficient opportunity for the employee to comment on whether his performance is adequate, and or any reasons for poor performance, and or on whether further support or training is being requested. Now, if you take that paragraph 84 and apply it to the previous case of Mr Hoggins, you'll see exactly why the Employment Tribunal were quick and it was probably a fairly easy decision to reach that the dismissal had been unfair. So going back to the case, um, the Employment Tribunal found that the dismissal had been fair by HMRC. They had set out the standards that were required of the employee in this case and the standards were not unreasonably high. The performance improvement plan had related to his work and they had looked at alternatives and it wasn't unreasonable or unfair for the employer not to slot the employee into another post within the organisation. Again, interestingly, in this case, the employee had been unhappy with his line manager and he believed that he had the right to insist on a change in line manager and had, of course, raised a grievance about issues during the process. The employer had followed their three-stage PIP process over a reasonable period of time and Mr Adamoko Mensa had not improved and therefore the Employment Tribunal found that his dismissal for capability was not unfair. And the final short case I want to talk to you about by way of illustration is Miss Crotty versus SMRS Limited, which was heard at the Manchester Employment Tribunal in January 2020, so a more recent case. In this case, uh, Miss Crotty had been employed as the operations manager for the employer for approximately 11 years. And it's another case where the employee had raised a grievance and where her claim for unfair dismissal had failed. She'd been given a final written warning about her performance and she was seeking to claim in the case that the final written warning had been unreasonable and therefore it wasn't fair to dismiss her. And interestingly in this case the employment tribunal did address the point about the final written warning and said that it's not something which they needed to reopen or revisit in terms of the fairness as long as in their view it had been dealt with in good faith and that there were prima facie grounds for imposing that final written warning. Which I think again is helpful for employers to understand that as long as you are again following a fair process in issuing the warnings and going through that process the employment tribunal will not go into the roots of the final written warning or the warnings to see if they were in themselves reasonable. It's the dismissal or the decision that you take to dismiss that they will really 
be interested in and which they will analyse in order to determine a decision of unfair dismissal. And then just finally before I wrap up, I thought it would be useful to refer to a couple of historic cases which were integral to many of the judgments in the cases that I was reading from the Employment Tribunal at the first instance. So if you want to look these up again, I'll pop them in the show notes to give you a bit more information. But the first one is James versus Waltham Holy Cross UDC from 1973. And it was said that an employer should be slow to dismiss an employee for incapability without first telling the employee of the respects in which he was failing to do his job adequately warning him of the possibility or likelihood of dismissal on this ground and giving him an opportunity of improving his performance. In other words, there should be proper investigation of the employee's performance and identification of the problem, warning of the consequences of failing to improve and a reasonable chance to improve. So again, all the points we've been talking about in the previous episodes are illustrated here and it is a fairly simple on paper, way of resolving the issue fairly. But of course, acknowledging that many other issues can come up in the meantime that can complicate things. The other leading case on this is Aladair versus Taylor from 1978, in which the Court of Appeal said that the test of a fair capability dismissal, aside from procedure, has two elements. One, does the employer honestly believe the employee is incompetent or unsuitable for the job? And two, are the grounds for that belief reasonable? So if you keep those points from those two 1970s cases in mind when you're going through any capability process with an employee, then you shouldn't go far wrong. But of course, if you have any questions or if anything unusual arises or if you just want to make sure that you're doing it correctly, then I always recommend that you get advice, particularly if you have a tricky situation which you think is likely to result in the dismissal of an employee. It's much easier to get it right in the first instance than try to resolve it at an employment tribunal later on. And as the Employer Recruitment Solutions Services Limited have seen, it can be fairly costly, especially if you have to pay out in excess of £20,000 in compensation to a former employee. So that brings this mini-series on capability performance dismissals to an end. As always, I welcome any questions that you might have, any input on the mini-series, anything you'd like covered in the future. And of course, we're always here, myself and my colleagues, very happy to help you with any capability and performance improvement processes or disciplinaries or dismissals. Don't hesitate to get in touch. My email address is alison at realemploymentadvice.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening and I hope that you have a fantastic week ahead. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.